I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. It's difficult to escape the presence of history in Bergheim, Alsace. Here you'll see one of the most well-preserved medieval wall fortifications surrounding the town since 1311. And a living testament to time, an incredible 700-year-old lime tree still grows outside the gate. It continues to flower, though today it has a little help standing from some man-made supports. During the Renaissance period, wine was a popular European product, and Alsatian wine was one of the most famous products. Alsace sat right along the Rhine, which served as an important trade conduit to the rest of Europe. But in the late 16th century, several tragedies hit the region. A witch hunt spread through Alsace, and accusations of witchcraft ran rampant. In Bergheim, there were several accused women who were blamed for crop damage to the wine business. One woman was accused of causing hail damage to a vineyard. Another was accused of causing grape rot, and another was accused of turning wine bad. Under torture, most women admitted to having caused these things, and they were sent to their deaths at the stake. The Alsatian witch frenzy was part of a larger trend. In the early 1600s, the larger city of Würzburg in Germany experienced a great witch hunt frenzy from about 1626 to 1631, and hundreds of people were burned at the stake, including men, women, teenagers, and even small children. Some historians place estimates at 900 casualties in and around the Würzburg area. People from all walks of life were targeted, religious leaders, public officials, actors, craftsmen, and even royalty. The frenzy spread to other cities, and it refreshed the Bergheim witch hunt, where about 40 women were burned at the stake from the late 1500s to the mid-1600s. Today you can visit a museum in Bergheim and learn more about their stories. Coinciding with some of the witch hunt was the devastating Thirty Years' War, lasting from 1618 to 1648. 
This war started as a conflict between Catholics and Protestants, and it evolved into a complex power struggle among the European elites. Alsace suffered heavily in this war, where millions of lives were lost. And Bergheim experienced further hardships and also a plague outbreak. Population dwindled. And an influx of settlers came to Alsace from Switzerland, Romania, Austria, Germany, and Hungary. This repopulation of Alsace breathed new life into the town of Bergheim, and it set the stage for the modern wine era. Today, Bergheim has an economy focused on wine and tourism. The wine production is dominated by a few dedicated producers working with vineyards that sit right in the center of the greater Alsace region. Bergheim is home to two of Alsace's Grand Cru sites, Altenburg and Kanzlerberg. Kanzlerberg is a smaller site with just two producers making wine from here, and Altenburg is larger and pretty well known worldwide. Keep listening to hear more from one producer whose family traces a Bergheim presence back to 1744 and who makes extraordinary wines. This producer has helped us reshape our thoughts about terroir through multi-variety field blends. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Matthew Dice of Domain, Marcel Dice and Alsace on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Oh, good. Thank you. Very, very happy to be here. So you grew up in Alsace? So in Bergheim. Bergheim is the little city where the, the wineries stand up. And when did the wine part start to really take hold for you? I grew up on the middle of the winery. I was used to see all the time the different tractor, the press, the fruits coming from the vineyard, the work at the vineyard, and used to help during the, the holiday and all. So um, that that was the maybe one of the best moments I, I had. You enjoyed it. You yeah, enjoyed. a lot. When you are so much involved to wine so early, some people have a lot of difficult to, to follow and some other are really passionate. I think that that can give really two opposite results. For my, my side, it was uh, a bit more complicated again because... My parents just break when I was like uh, 17. So that was a moment where I just wanted to have my own life and get a bit out of that. But I think 
on my herd was clear since the beginning. So, yeah, uh, I had the chance to make some really interesting studies and one moment to have more freedom to go to more theoric things like mathematics, chemistry, physical. I, I, I like it a lot, like a, a quantic uh, physical that's very passionate for me. And I, I even find mathematics like beautiful. But uh, when I realized that my life can be on a lab and doing analysis and, and reports, that was not matching at all. I mean, when I was young, the, when I have like five minutes free, I was just taking my bicycle, going on the vineyard, uh, looks what happened, try to understand. So uh, that was not matching at all. That was interesting for, uh, um, let's say... In- make, intellectual. Make, uh, exactly. But uh, when the family was starting to be again a bit more quiet and everybody is more relaxed, I changed again my direction for the studies and I get back to agriculture. So that's make uh, a little bit uh, unusual direction for, for that. And what was the history of the domain that your family controlled? The the story of the domain is uh, quite easy. I mean, actually, we had wine on the family since I think I'm in the ninth generation. But actually, if you look at it, it was like a lot of family who just own a parcel of, of vineyard and used to make the wine, sell a part, uh, drink the other side, <laughs> the other part. So that was the the, the beginning. The story of the winery really, really started with my grand-grandfather, Marcel, and my grandfather, André, who actually really restarted something. Because my grand-grandfather, Marcel, he was the son of a family of uh, 10 children. And so at this time, people used to share the vineyard between the number of of children. So that means it was almost nothing left for him. Like, uh, we just start with... uh, 0.4 0.4 acres, so that was nothing, actually. But in the first part of the life of my grand-grandfather, Marcel, was to be on the French army, and uh, his wife was used to run a restaurant. So uh, we're coming from that. And it's really funny, today, our house is the old uh, restaurant that we, we used to run before. So, And I think that's why we are so or at least for my father and me, uh, interest by, uh, you know, like pairing with food, playing with the taste, and uh, that's that's something we like a lot. Mm, maybe it's part of nostalgia from that. What did your dad tell you about wine? You know, m- my father never, uh, when I was young, my father never spoke about wine. I mean, my father used to uh, show us some wine to taste to i mean starting to practice and and not and maybe discover taste but uh you know for him it's not a question of a description of wine and description of taste it's more what is behind i mean the culture the id why this type of wine is made there uh what the story just around for example uh, we used to go uh, in Italy every year, and uh, uh, my father was very friend, or still very friend, 
with the guy who was running Isole Olena. And that was very, that was for me, you know, uh, the first time I came at this, the man, I was like four years old. We came back when I was seven. I, I wasn't able to describe, to understand the wine as a, as a professional, um, and even I wasn't drinking a lot of this wine. I just tasted a little bit. Uh, but it strongly touched me because to see this power that have these people to change and to create something, starting from almost nothing, a create and, I mean, even get back something because, you know, isolé et olena, isolé means it's isolated. And this guy in the middle of nowhere trusted that, trusted the idea about get back Italian Chianti in the front uh, of people. That was something was give me a high, high, it hit me. So I think that was a way to better understand my father. I mean, my father, he was doing exactly the same in front of me in Alsace. Just the only difference, he was not isolated. But I mean, he had this so strong power to change things and to push the terroir, the terroir expression, but n not like just the words, not like something you just put on, on the technical sheet, like terroir or something, I don't know, because you need to put terroir on the paper. Means terroir, like, like all the story was behind, like the culture of wine, like all the part of the wine. And so Paolo was a way for me to touch what my father was doing actually locally, just in front of me, that I wasn't understanding at this moment, actually. My father thought so strongly that the terroir is more important and the most important thing on the wine, that it was sometimes a bit uh, difficult for him because, he, you know, he made his studies in, in Burgundy. I mean, uh, he was so happy to be in the middle of all this Premier Cru, Grand Cru, and understand all this story was behind that it was difficult for him when when he get back in Alsace. You know, he wanted to change this side. I mean, uh, when my father just joined, people was uh, starting to do the the Grand Cru appellation. So that was a good point. That was already a very good point. But you know, my father he spent like almost twenty years. To show the wine from the domain, people came in and said, Hey, how are you doing? So we make the tasting together, blah, blah, blah. Explain all the wines, show everything, show the vineyards, explaining the vineyard, why here it doesn't work like here, why the Grand Cru Altenberg is different from Schönenburg. And okay, at this period of time, my father was still doing wine like everybody does, pure vital putting just the name of the place after. Uh, when the law for the Grand Cru was done, he's starting to put the Grand Cru. But I mean, he was showing the wine. And, you know, when people get back, like five, ten years after, they say, like, you remember? We made a beautiful tasting together, Mr. Dice. Ah, we taste together a beautiful, I don't know, Pinot Gris Grand Cru. <sighs> you know, if you trust the idea of terroir, 
it seems to be normal to hear that. But for my father, that was a little bit like, you know, I remember we had a very good, very great moment together. Uh, but I don't remember the, the name of, of your terroir. So the result was like destructing him, you know? Spend a half day to explain what is Altenberg's signature or Schoenberg's signature. And people came back and just say, oh, this is a, I remember a very good reasoning on crew. Okay. So uh, I think this was really the beginning of the idea of what we do today means complantation, field blend, because that was a way to push people to the only reference about the place, because they will not be able to use anymore the varietal. I don't say varietal is not good. I mean, I even like some varietal, just for the varietal. But I mean, I'm not sure people can can really remember or understand a wine with the two information on the same time. I mean, it's all, always wine you put in front. Or you're tasting the Riesling Grand Cru, or you're tasting the Altenberg. But it's very difficult to keep that, like, like two images that you just put together. It doesn't work for us. So that was a, a very good way to, to turn to, to kind of even push us to have the obligation to explain the place. It means today when I show the wines and I, I explain, I mean, I have the obligation to explain what is Altenberg, what is Schönenburg, what is Engelgarten, for example. So I cannot just say, oh, this is a Riesling, blah, blah, blah. It's a bit more difficult, but I think it's give more deepness to the reality. For me as a taster, when someone says that to me, I approach it differently because if someone says to me, okay, you're about to taste a Riesling, then I'm thinking I have a set in my mind of all the Rieslings I've tasted in my mind. I have a certain expectation. I have a certain idea of the base, the height, what it can do, what kind of aromas it might have, what kind of aromas it might not have, mm -hmm. what would be unusual. But when someone says, okay, here's the Mamborg, I, I don't have any experience of that. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, my going into it, my mind frame is different. Exactly. It's what we wanted to do. Turn the mind open to the difference and not necessarily set to see what is common to the other. My point of view is that the time you're starting to put the vital on the label, you're starting to had to produce the taste. Of the varietal. Of the varietal. As opposed to the terroir signature. Exactly. And it's made very difficult because it's starting like, people starting to, to taste like, oh, this is a bit sweeter, or this is more acid, or it's a bit more, I don't know, the balance is like there, or it's more on the lees, or, you know, it's starting to be technical. It's starting to be like, all of that can be completely right. I mean, it's not wrong. It's what they taste. But they actually just misunderstood the place. So that was a little bit uh, what we tried to do. I think, I think honestly... Pure varietal are very interesting too. I mean, there is lots of beautiful Alsatian wine. Um, and I think even Alsatian wine haven't been so good since a long time. I mean, lots of winery try to do a very great job. The Hild or the top winery 
was never so low. Everybody tried to do the best. The thing is just that how you push the, the idea in front of people change a little bit their point of view. And there is honestly a lot of terroir wine in Alsace. The only point is, does everybody really understood them as terroir wine? I mean, you know, it's a little bit the story from, you know, the Chardonnay from New Words and the Chablis and, uh, and Burgundy. You know, the time you're starting to say, to speak about Chablis, people starting to understand what they have on the glass. If you give the same glass and just stay on the Chardonnay side, I think even people just can think that it's wrong because it doesn't match from the idea they have about Chardonnay. So I don't know. This is an open question. I mean, I'm not sure anybody have the truth. Every producer have his own answer to that. My father' reaction was to try to get lower the impact of the varietal, actually. And so I think uh, field blend was a very small way to to turn to that because first that was historical. Before the phylloxera, almost everything was field blend. I mean, this is the old tradition for Europe. Huh? I just heard Mr. Brunier from Chateauneuf, ah, the Vieux Telegraphs, they, they still have field blend because that was like this before. And actually, the Chateauneuf appellation is a good example because the low came later than the vineyard. So the low is just the adaptation to what was planted. means you can have a lot of vital because a lot of vital was field planted. The other extreme, the two-day other extreme is one pure clone on one field. That's called monoculture. It's exactly the opposite of what great wine producers try to do. They just turn to at least Massal because they try to keep again, keep back some diversity on the vineyard. And I think the diversity can give a lot of deepness into the wine, more than if you have the same plant reacting exactly on the same way. Okay, make beautiful thing, but simple on a way. Again, it's very personal, but I mean, for us, uh, wines are interesting for the palate side. It's interesting for the complexity. It's not in- interesting for the, just the aromatic. It means aromatic is it's the thing you can build by a technical way. The palate, the structure... That's the real terroir nature. That's the most interesting part. So when you want to express that, and you're doing co-plantation, mm. what are the keys to expressing it? Are yields important? Are amount of vines per hectare important? What are the aspects that are important when you? I think the yield actually is a good. It's a good, very good answer uh, for that because the natural yield. I mean, not with, with green harvest means naturally what the wines just give, is exactly the reflect about how difficult is it to grow on this place. And I think it's really important to understand that it's the limitation for the place which really is the sign of the terroir. People forget that, uh, that uh, most of the European vineyard have been on the hardest place. I mean, they have been put there for two reasons. People cannot do any other culture, 
it was not working for agriculture, means not possible to grow corns or something else, whatever. It was too rocky, too difficult, not enough water. So difficult. And the wines is the only plant with need that. I mean, if it's too easy, the extreme of too easy is just, okay, flower fall on the floor. No wines. Okay. So that's the extreme. So the other extreme is poor soil, difficult situation, deep roots, no superficial roots. So that's push actually wine to a very difficult situation where, I mean, the genetic part is less important or impacting less the wine than if you are just on a very easy place. Just an example, when people try to select a new variety of corn or something else, they have to sort the different clones, the different variety they create. To can do that, they actually put twice the fertilizer that you normally put on this culture to produce the maximum. They are doing that for one main reason. If there is no limitation for the plant to grow, they will express mainly the genetic side. You take the same diversity, you put on a land, you don't add any fertilizer, you just let the grass, all this plant will look the same. They will not be able to sort them. So, you understand? On the wine, it's exactly the same. If it's growing slowly, on a difficult place, that works to pick together. If it's just growing too much, if it's too green, that doesn't work at all. So the yield is a key, I mean. It's a key at least to understand if it's possible to do it or not. But it's still just a result from the situation. Okay, terroir is a limitation. That's the key. Why do you think historically people co-planted and then they don't now? I mean, what changed in that hundreds of years time period where it was a regular thing to do in the past and it's not any longer? Because before the phylloxera, people wasn't a, you know, it wasn't normally n nobody just removed the field of wine and just replanted. That, that wasn't exist. People used to change the wine was just died. So that means that at this period of time, actually, people wasn't very concerning about just have a taste or have a special flavor, they was involved to make wine every year. And the biggest problem was to make fruit every year. I mean, you know, today, the different clones, and even when it's not clones and, and massal, it's starting to be enough well selected to have a plant who's make fruit every year. Even some varietal are a bit more sensitive to situation. So in Alsace, what I know better is, for example, the muscat, some year the muscat doesn't make fruit because you have the flower in bad situation. And the muscat is very sensible to that. Okay? But you have to understand, by the past, all the grapes was like this. I mean, it wasn't selected like today. So the biggest problem for, for wine grower was to make fruit. And the diversity, the biodiversity, was an answer to that. This one will not work. This one will not work, but the other one will, will work. So actually, that was a way to have a natural regulation about the production from every year. 
And it's what people forget, and they forget it. Um, they forget it because with the phylloxera, we remove all of that. We remove a good part of diversity. Actually, people lose a good part of diversity at this moment. And when they're starting to replant just after, I mean, they're starting to be a bit more on the modern way to understand agriculture. So that was the beginning of, okay, planted everything the same, pure things. was all, only on few places where people just continue, even it was grafted, they continue to, to do as before, like a field blend. Uh, more on the south and country of the south because Fieldland was working more. On the north, in Alsace, we had a, a different story because we actually didn't have a lot of vineyard after the phylloxera. So it's half of the historical vineyard. So. And what is very, or what hit me a lot is that if you look at when it this winter have been replanted. It's mostly after the Second World War. That means between the Phylloxera and the Second World War, we had some wines, but not so much, actually. And I think it's at this time that people turn to vital. You feel that the vines, when they're interplanted, that they speak to each other in some way? Do they behave differently than if they're planted uh, singly? Uh, completely. This is something I, I trust a lot. It's sure. It's starting to be clearly more and more understood that uh, that uh, the different plants speak together. They don't speak like we speak, but they speak together. They have an influence one to each other. So I think uh, field blend is very interesting because of that. And you know, and the second point is, uh, very often it's the human being who's create the difference between. I mean, the time you have two pure vineyards you don't work them exactly the same all the time. When you have a field blend, it's a big group. You will not say, I will go and I will just prune the reasoning, and then I will prune the muscat, and then I will, I will just work the earth around the reasoning and not around the pinot gris. That's not true. You have a group, so you're taking care about the group. You don't make any difference. And so what you saw on the vineyard is that the group is really much more together you don't customize the farming to the grape variety within the crew no no it means we just work all the group together for example if i look at uh, chauveig or langenberg there is two parcels completely field blend was on the crew these two parcels we just work them like a big group this we will go to work the langenberg we will go to work on the chauveig and we will Okay, take care of all. If you really trust the idea that it can make a one group, that means you don't sort. We have us all together. It's ripening together. So we can just take all. Otherwise, that means it's, it's, it's smarter to just, okay, plant them separately and, and pick them at different moments. No, for me, you know, the complexity, the deepness, and even... What is interesting on the wine is this diversity. You know, it's always a, a, a big question like how many percent of uh, Riesling, how many percent of uh, Pinot Gris, how many percent of Givers Chaminet, how many percent. 
my god i mean okay that give security to people they think that because uh, they know okay it's 40% of riesling they think that they can have an idea about the wine okay it should be this flavor this flavor most of the time it just doesn't work the result is not the addition of the percentage of each one where does vine age play into it especially when you have different varieties that may be at different vine ages they are planted exactly on the same time they are okay in each crew the vines are the same planting day yeah yeah the same planting day the only thing is uh we had the chance to to rent some vineyard from people who stopped to to do wine and that was for us a huge chance to can replant on the field blend so that means we planted all of that in one time from some other parcel that we owned before it was more like a time to change them like just it wasn't possible to remove everything and plant everything at the same time so from a lot of parcels we're starting to replant what was dying with a more diversity of vital inside and like we remove one quarter and replant and then the other quarter and replant so that's today a 20 25 years work so the winner is starting to be really interesting for that what is very funny is uh, when you're starting to make a field blend you have less impact from new wines i mean really quickly it's starting to be more interesting maybe it's the communication maybe it's uh, the density too because um, we plants always have very high density means for the crew like 8000 wines by hectare but for the grand crew 12 to 13000 if you're going to do a lot of different grape varieties you're going to plant them all at once how do you decide whether or not to use trellises to head prune yeah yeah it's on wires it's more a balance for the vigorous if you can have enough limit from the place and the situation pruning is not you know the real meaning about pruning because you have different way to do it on wire or not to protect from the sun or to create kind of little protection or if you put on wire get less humidity less moisture so less trouble for the health about the vineyard but i mean the real beginning of pruning is give to the wine a wine signal and the signal is you cannot grow anymore so you have to start to make a fruit. If you go on the wild and you look at the vineyard was grow up on the, on the tree, they don't make fruit. Right. They don't need it. I mean, uh, wines on the wild don't need the fruit. Making the fruit is the reaction about it's too hard to grow. So maybe I can make a seed which can make a new plant somewhere else. That's the real meaning about the, the fruit. So you understand, have the complexity, the density, the real maturity of the fruit is reducing the vigorous, the capacity to grow and give the information, you're limited. So pruning is just giving this information to the vineyard. So in Bergheim, where you are, there's a lot of clay in the soils in general, right? Limestone and clay, yeah. Bergheim is the, the end of the, what we call the fault of uh, Ribovillet. 
it's a place where you have more clay than some other place. We don't have, for example, lots of granite. The granite only start again from uh, Schlossberg, for example, Kaisersberg. And on the other side, saint Hippolyte, with the Langenberg that we produce, was on the granite. And that's the only place we, we, we grow on the granite side. Because m- most of the, the vineyard is on uh, the clay and limestone and Mars. Does that affect what the set of grape varieties that you would use in a vineyard is? Do you choose some and not others to put into the mix because of the soil types? Yeah, but reducing this question to the type of soil is not... It will be too simple. I mean, you need to take care about the situation, sensibility to the noble road. If it's somewhere when you have a very early maturity or very late maturity, you have to understand all. And, And even the human tradition for the place. So for us, when we plant a new, a new vineyard, uh, the main thing we do is we first try to taste all the wines who's produced on the place. That gives us an idea about what's working on the place and what is not working for our point of view. So it's quite easy for us to know what can be interesting on the place. It's not like a question where you're starting from nothing. So do you consider botrytis part of what you do, or do you try to keep it out? Yeah, botrytis, noble road, for me, it's part of the terroir. That means we, we don't like to sort that. I think, you know, well, this is again a very personal point of view, but I think that uh, when I sort something, it's always like I miss something on one side, and on the other side, I miss something else. So wines are not complete. So sorting for me is not... I, I don't feel it like something interesting for us. So we don't sort a lot. For us, the noble roads is more part of the place. Uh, where, where you are on the, on the Schönenburg or on Bourg, for example, you will always have a part of where you are on, on Mambour was, from my point of view, one of the hottest places in Alsace. It's completely south exposed. It's not on, on a real valley situation because the hill is going into the plain, so there is nothing in front. And the hot wind from the plain just going up to the hill, so you burn the acidity, you make maturity very early. So that's not a place for another road. Um, this is a place to make a drier wine. Altenberg is so exposed, but it's just the exit of a valley. You have this wind, the river just under, so it's really more part of the place. Clearly, the botrytis is part of the place for us. So sometimes you have in the same vineyard white and red grapes planted, right? Completely, completely. And it's funny because, uh, you know, for example... uh, um, if you take some places, in Alsace, normally on the Grand Cru, people have to use the four noble varietals. And like the Appalachian Grand Cru exists since many years now, you normally should have on the Grand Cru mainly these four. You know, there were still places where there is more of one varietal who's not allowed on the Grand Cru. And red is a good example. That means 
the answer to what to plant on the place is the real farming answer. If the Pinot Noir works well, okay, just gonna go to the Pinot Noir. If it's the Pinot Gris, we're gonna for the Pinot Gris. Uh, if it's the Muscat, we go for the Muscat. If three of them works, or if 20 of them, <laughs> I say 20, but we have like more 10 type of grapes in Alsace, so I take the Altenberg. When you walk on the vineyard, you still see a lot of different vitals. So that's a place where you can try to put everything. It's a farming answer. You don't start by which taste I would like to produce. You start from what is adapted to the place. So I guess that's a good time then to speak about some of those different places. You have the Altenberg, you have the Schonenberg, and you have the Mamberg. Exactly. And we had uh, we work uh, nine other places that we put on label, uh, like uh, Lieudy, uh, Langenberg, Engelgarten, Rottenberg, Grünspiel, Grasberg, Burg, Übül, uh, Burlenberg. All the Bergs. You have all the Bergs. <laughs> I have all, all the Bergs and all the Heim and all the, <laughs> the Vier. Yeah. But if I were to think about some of those crews and how they're different, having never visited. Langenberg, it's pure granite. It's a, what we call a double mica granite, so a type of granite with normally not too much impact by too dry. I mean, it's drier than clay, but it's not blood. And if you take, for example, uh, Bourg, Bourg is on heavy Mars, Trias Mars from Kuiper, means place was keeping a lot of water, very heavy soil. It's on the middle of the valley, more protected. You have the river just under, you have the forest just behind. And so finally, the, the, the expression from the place is very different. Borg is more, it's darker. It means the soil is darker, the situation is colder. It's more sensible to the noble road. You have a more concentration, maybe more deepness. It's always gets more earthier. It's differences difficult to to show to people. Uh, I mean, from nothing, just from the label. But uh, I think it's the most interesting part. You have to learn it. You cannot, from scratch, from nothing, have an idea. It's not like Riesling dry. No, you have to learn the signature for this is this, the board, this, this kind. But you you discover something new. It touch you, hit you. But I mean, if I were to think more clearly about some of the differences between the different parcels that you work, what mm. would those be? You know, what is difficult is that people imagine that the difference from the terroir is like like we learn in school, like one uh, variable to change. Right. Agriculture is not that. Agriculture is a it's a it's a two hundred a variable changed. So it's it's really difficult to just say something like that's change, so that's change on the taste. It doesn't work like this. I just saw behind you a painting. You know, this painting is made with a lot of color. There is some yellow, there is some green, there is some red. You can calculate it, the impact of every color. It will never tell you what's feeling is coming from this painting. 
And the terroir, the impact of everything in the terroir is exactly the same into the expression of the wine. You, you, you're not able to catch every single variable and say, okay, the yellow is just on two centimeters on the top on the right, so the feeling will be. It doesn't work like this. So for us, it's more working the place, understood what happened, and don't forget, people are part of the terroir. People, the people who work the place are part of the terroir. Making wine is a human being decision. If you do nothing on the place, that makes forests. So uh, for us, maybe the better way to, to catch that is to remember about how people were tasting before. This Tastevin, what the meaning? Tastevin means you will touch the wine. So that means that was the old tradition to understand the place, touching the wine, not looking the aromatic. Anyway, with the Tastevin, you just can't. You don't smell anything. It's open. It's not like a glass, so you don't smell anything. You can just taste, touch. And it's the touch was the real signature from the place. You know, by the past, there was a, in Alsace, but in Burgundy too, and in a lot of vineyard, it was some people paid by the country or by the king or to give the insurance that the wine was coming from a place. That was the, the work about the people we call gourmet. The gourmet was the people who was paid to just say, okay, this wine I taste, when I see on the palate the structure, I can say it's coming from there. If it's structured differently, that's coming from somewhere else. That was the work, because the wine was, was coming from Rigvier hadn't the same price at all that from another village. And the gourmet have the authority to control that. And he was controlled that by the palate by the structure. That's the most important things to, to remember. Nose is just built for the moment. Palette is built for a long time. In terms of the maturity curve in the bottle, how should I understand when to approach these wines? You know, if you look at the past, it was always the heavier soil, more structurated, who was, uh, was uh, mostly appreciated. From what is coming, the idea that the one that you can keep is better. It's coming from only one point. It's coming from a very farming agriculture story. On agriculture, the only thing that have a real value was what you can keep. What you cannot keep, what you have to sell quickly, it's the things that doesn't have a value. And for a family, a farming family, one century, two centuries ago, can keep a wine on a cellar for 20 years. That was a way to keep some money. And that was a way to, can you know, when children married, actually they sell the tank and they can pay for the wedding or they can pay for the new house for them. That was the way. They wasn't using a bank. So at this period of time, Heavier soil would make wine more on the reduction, with a bit higher acidity, and more a palate wine, you know. 
uh, the aromatic wasn't so important than, than today. People was looking the the palette, the structure, and so that's made that a lot of very famous places was mostly, and not only in Alsace, but it was mostly heavier soil. When you are on clay or on Mars, mainly like the Chenambour, it's built to age like thirty, like forty. It's not built for ten. How much do you deal with reduction of clay soils? I'm not sure reduction is is the good answer. I mean, reduction is just kind of snapshot from one moment, but this is the, the technical snapshot. I prefer to speak about the um, aperture or close structure of the wine. I mean, you have few wines when you open the bottle. Even if it's not reduced, you feel you need air to develop. In some other, they are not oxidized and they are not reduced, but they are open. And that's what you can see with the granite and the and the most heavy soil. And, and actually, it's funny, if you look at an Alsace, uh, when people have a heavier soil, they sell the wines a bit later. And that would be you guys, right? We sell the Cru and the Grand Cru after two to three years. People, all the time you make a mistake is, is when you try to rush the things. If you don't let the time to the nature to go, you have to technically impact. And so uh, selling the wine after two or three years, that's a really a way to can adapt because I don't have to rush that to put on the bottle. Some wines at the winery are bottled, I don't know, like 10 months after the harvest. And some other are bottled like uh, one year, uh, two year. It's just depending the wine and the time you need. I feel like some of the lengths of ferments have changed too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really depending the place. It's really depending the situation, the year. Wines who have get a bit dry need more time. I will say wet year, fermenting always better than dry year. Uh, so that's type of explanation was need that was normally need that people adapt the vinification at least if they want to don impact the vinification by a technical way when you're thinking about a, a way to vinify that's going to preserve those terroir signatures that you're mm. looking for what are techniques that work in the winery to do that well one of the key is the time for the pressing because if you press too fast you have a lot of things to to sediment before you can take the juice. And if you need a lot of time for the sedimentation, that means very often it starts to ferment on the tank before you can make the racking. And so at this point, people had have to have a technical influence. That means they will have to correct the temperature to slow down the beginning of the fermentation. They will have to filter at the bottom, the bottom of the sedimentation, just because they don't have naturally clear juice. I mean, not clear like, like water, but enough clear to can be vinificated. And pressing very slowly is the key. Means you just need the night, and, and after you can directly put them tank and it's go naturally if you miss this part i think it's very difficult then to have a natural vinification 
uh, on the cellar because you, you're starting to touch, so you have to correct. So you have to correct what you correct, and then you correct the correction, and again, again, again. So it's it's oh, at least how we are organized. The long pressing is is the key. So we press between. I mean, when we are really on the rush, it make like eight hour, and uh, when we have time, it's more like uh, I mean twenty four. Um, obviously, one day. I mean, we load on the morning and. And the morning after, we just unload and load again. So, and so whole cluster press. Yeah, only if you crush the grape, you just can't have just one night of sedimentation. It doesn't work. It means you have like ten to fifteen percent of sedimentation of the volume of the tank to filter. So that means you start to impact. No, when you press very slowly like this uh, for like a. 30 hectoliter, we will have like 15 liter to to filter. So I can do that just on a manually. I don't need a real filter to clear this juice. The key is always the same, taking the time. And what about the approach to lees? You know, you can find on the markets very old bottle of Burgundy, for example, or Bordeaux means when I say old, I say really old, like one century, things like that. You will not find them for Alsace, for one reason. Alsace have a tradition of aging on the wood, on the cellar. That means, like I explained, people have the tradition to keep the wine on the cellar and set it when they need, or set it when the wine was ready. That means it was bottled to be sell. So, when you have a wine on a big wood tank, what we call a foudre, actually, if the fermentation is not finished, the lees will not fall down on the bottom. And second point, when it's finished, when the lees just fall down on the bottom, the shape of the tank makes that the contact with the lees is a bit more reduced than when you have a modern tank uh, where the bottom is very flat. And so... When it's flat like this, you have a lot of contact, so you will have a lot of reduction on the wine. When it's more reduced on the wood tank, on the food, you just have a balance between the oxidation and the reduction from the lees for the reduction, from the outside for the oxidation. So that's a natural way to keep on the lees and can keep the wine completely on lees. means, you know, by the past people... They didn't want it to pump and pump and pump things. There was no pump. They have to move it by hand. So they've tried to find a way to can age naturally and don't have to touch them so much. And the food, the shape of the food is made for that. If you look at the shape of the food, everybody thinks it's just natural shape. You cannot do on another way. But actually, if you look at, for example, the shape of the tank of fermentation for the red in Burgundy, it's uh, what we call tronconique. That means you can make a tank on another shape. People just decided to have this shape because that was a way to keep the wine on the cellar. And I think the, the question for the lees was to can keep on the lees, naturally. Don't have to touch so much wine. So for me, it's very comfortable because I can let the wine for, for the year without have to touch it so much. And I will make the racking before the bottling. And that's it. 
And what about malolactic conversion? You know, malolactic starting to be important the time you have a lot of uh, malic acid. When you don't have a lot, or when you make it during the winter at cold temperature, it doesn't touch so much the wine. I think for us it doesn't touch the wine so much. So uh, obviously if the wine does it, it will do it. If not, no. But mostly, you know, when it's fermenting very slowly, you have the malolactic very often. To can avoid to have the malolactic fermentation, people need to add sulfur. Right, or filter, right. Yeah. So if you don't touch it, if you just let on the tank, that will happen. So, so when you put different grape varieties together, and it, when you put them together and you vinify them together... Do they assume the characteristics of each other or do they become a third thing? Or, I mean, I understand what the wines taste like, but I mean, during the vinification. What is completely clear is that when you press and when you taste the juice just after, it already have the characteristic about what will have the, the wine after. The thing is, you have two things, but it became, it will became one. It's the integration about all of them together was beautiful. You know, a blending, a blending is always like you decided something and you add a bit of that, a bit of that to try to reach some character. And for me it's 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 interesting but I find more elegance to the the way that that all these tastes are linked together when you have a field blend, when you, when you ferment them together. That's, that's the point. Matthew Dice works with his father, Marcel, to see if two things can become one. Thank you very much for being here today. <laughs> Thank you. Matthew Dice of Domaine Marcel Dice in Alsace in Bergheim. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.